0: Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive
1: care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. Maybe you've been here. The phone rings and everything changes. It's what elder care experts call the call. An older family member has an emergency and you need to step in. And you begin thinking of that call as the time when everything started to fall apart. Journalist Howard Gleckman got the call in 1996. His mother-in-law in in Florida had suffered a major stroke. And that call changed my life. Then we learned that things were worse than
0: we ever imagined. My mother-in-law's stroke was uh, very bad and we had to make a decision about whether to take her off of life support which we eventually did.
1: The trauma and grief of having to make that decision to end life support that was heavy, but it was just the beginning. We also learned while we were there that my father-in-law was suffering from advanced cancer. Of course, Howard's father-in-law hadn't told anyone he was sick because in a fairly common story they didn't want to worry anybody.
0: My wife and I needed to figure out how we were going to care for my father-in-law. He wanted to stay uh, in their apartment alone, and that turned out to be not possible. So we eventually made a decision, uh, all the three of us together, we made a decision that um, uh, he would move to uh, Maryland, uh, where we lived, and
1: we would take care of him for the rest of his life. That's the short version. The family tried many things before finally deciding to move Howard's father-in-law to an assisted living residence near them. And just on the heels of that move, Howard got another disturbing call. And this time it was my mother, and she was calling to tell me that my dad was in the hospital with a a heart problem. Howard flew back to Florida, where his parents lived too. But it wasn't just a heart problem his dad had, it was severe heart failure.
0: And uh, we became uh, simultaneously caregivers for my father-in-law here in Maryland, and and, uh, long distance caregivers for uh, my dad in Florida. I was flying down there every other weekend to spend time with him and my mom and with the aide that we hired to
1: to make sure that everything's working. All this happened within three months, the phone calls that landed Howard and his wife in what he calls the least exclusive club, people taking care of aging parents. I'm Kitty Isley, and this is 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. Economics writer Howard Gleckman became an expert on something he never would have imagined, how we choose and pay for long-term care, and how these days, hedge funds are helping decide what grandma gets.
0: I think a thing to keep in mind is is that I was a journalist. My wife was a lawyer. We we were very good at asking questions. It's sort of what we both did for a living. But we discovered that the world of long-term care is impenetrable for people who are not experts. We struggled to learn the lingo. We struggled to figure out where they could get support. Uh, we struggled to figure out how to talk to the doctors, how to understand their medications. It was a real
1: nightmare. And being a journalist, I did what all journalists did, was I wrote about it. Howard Gleckman wrote a book called Caring for Our Parents. And in his career since then, he's become one of the most clear-eyed critics of what I call the elder industrial complex. And that's what I wanted to understand. Why is elder care so complicated? Why are there so many types of care facilities? And why is it so hard to navigate them? When Howard's father-in-law moved into an assisted living place during his cancer treatment, he needed a lot of help. Someone to help him to the bathroom, bathe him, move him around.
0: But assisted living doesn't provide enough assistance for somebody in his medical condition. So we, we found a, 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 a good
1: quality assisted living facility and we had to hire a live-in aide for him. You heard it from Howard. Assisted living doesn't necessarily provide enough assistance. So how do you even choose? Make sense of what's out there. So I have a stack of brochures here. We get them in the mail every week. Because of my dad's illness, he was on a lot of those senior mailing lists. They all have stuff like a picture of a sunny brunch, lots of pretty pathways through the trees. There's the Mather, a life plan community, The Methodist Home, Sunrise Living. There's even one called It's the New Inspire Brand on Embassy Row. They say it's a, quote, ultra-luxury senior living community. I don't even know what that means. I couldn't make sense of it when I was caring for my dad, and I still can't. None of these places state their prices. You can't find out what you're buying or how much it will cost, unless you actually meet with an intake or salesperson at that facility. Okay, fair enough. They need to figure out what your family member needs. But the costs can differ wildly because the business models differ. Maybe you're paying rent for a room for an elder, and the other costs are billed separately. Or you buy into a continuing care community. But at what level? Remember, you usually have to make this choice pretty quickly. Because somebody's had a health crisis and you have to set up care. It is not the best recipe for making good decisions. So I put this question to Howard. Is there an official definition, a government definition of what an elder care facility is?
0: No, there is a very specific set of rules around nursing homes or a licensed skilled nursing facilities. But the reality is only about 5% of, of, of older adults who need supports and services are living in nursing homes. Uh, that's a small number. Yeah, so there's about 14 million people who need long-term care and about 700,000 of them live in a nursing home. So then everyone else uh lives in all of these different settings and no one can agree on what they are. Of course the vast majority just live at home and everybody knows what that is. But um assisted living, every state has its own definition of assisted living. So you think about 300 room towers uh run by major corporations or you can think about um uh, a small group home that's that's a that, that maybe just operated locally and may have 10 residents and there's independent living which is totally unregulated uh it simply means it's a place where a bunch of old people live together and and then there are you know uh, memory care there's there's a a, a, a million other uh, uh variations on this theme
1: but the only one that's actually regulated in a consistent way uh is a nursing home and in Howard's case His father-in-law didn't need so much nursing care. He needed help with his day-to-day life. What's called in the system, activities of daily living. As Howard learned, you almost have to be a consumer specialist to figure out if a facility or a service will match your loved one's needs. And you have to figure out how to pay for it without knowing for how long. Is it temporary? Or are we talking long-term? How do you define long-term care?
0: My definition is the person the personal supports you need to live the best quality of life that you can. There is no particular official legal definition of it, but it's it's all that stuff that you need that isn't provided by a doctor or a registered nurse or or someone like that. Somebody help helping you bathe. Somebody helping you with cooking. Somebody helping you getting in and out of bed. And you'll be paying for
1: all of that out of pocket, as you do for all long term care until you run out of money. That's when the government kicks in. And for the most part, by the time the government does step in to help with your care, you usually have to get it at a nursing home. Enter Wall Street. When we come back, Howard Gleckman explains how the nursing home industry is now big business and why that matters. You're listening to 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. Being a parent is really hard. Of course, it can also be incredibly rewarding and delightful. Childproof is a new podcast about how we can raise kids without losing track of ourselves in the process. Host Yasmin Khan, a journalist and a mom, brings us conversations and stories with fellow parents and experts on how to navigate this whole parenting thing, especially the shifts that happen within ourselves. Because parents are growing too. Listen to Childproof, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. This is 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. I'm Kitty Isley. My guest, journalist Howard Gleckman, has become an expert on the business of elder care. First from arranging care for his own parents and in-laws, and now as a writer and senior fellow at the Urban Institute. When you have to become a think tank expert to understand how elder care works, you know it's too complicated for the rest of us. So we dove into the one place the care you get is defined, nursing homes. Remember, that's where the government will pay for your care if you run out of funds. And that can happen pretty quickly if you have a uh, dementia, like Alzheimer's. But even care at nursing homes can be super complicated. And this is where Wall Street comes in.
0: Probably of nursing homes are run by for-profit businesses. About 20% are run by not-for-profits. The not-for-profits tend to be mission-based, often religious-based organizations. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, Catholic nursing homes or, or Hebrew homes or Muslim homes, that sort of thing. They tend to be either very big or very, very small and the ones that are in the most trouble among the not-for-profits are the ones that are very small. And think for example of a 20-bed nursing home that's run by an order of nuns. They're really really struggling. A lot of them are going out of business and it's it's hard to see how many of them are going to survive because they cannot afford the wages. The staff costs because of COVID have gone up so much and a lot of the buildings are very old. These buildings are not well designed for infection control. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have double rooms or even quads. So for all those reasons, those small facilities, they can't raise capital because who's going to lend money to an order of nuns with a 20-bed nursing home? So, <laughs> right.
1: and, and yet the nuns are trustworthy. Yeah,
0: the other nuns are trustworthy, but they don't make any money. And if I'm if I'm a bank and I'm lending money, I I want I want to make a profit. I want to make sure I get I get paid. I don't care sure. if they're trustworthy. So there's that group of people, that 20-25% of nursing homes that are not for profits, then there are the for-profits that are the vast majority of facilities. The thing to understand about for-profits is often the buildings themselves, the building and the land under the buildings are owned by investors, who don't know anything about running nursing homes. They don't know anything about caring for old people. They're just investors. They may be investing in shopping centers they may be investing in office buildings and they invest in hospitals and they invest in nursing homes. As property. It's property. It's, real, it's the real estate business. It's not the caring for your parents' business. It's the real estate business. So they're the ones, and there are things called real estate investment trusts, which are just pools, publicly traded pools of investments. And those will include hospitals, shopping centers, nursing homes, hotels, whatever it is. So you have the owner of the building, and they lease the building to an operator. The operators often are themselves large corporations or large chains, they pay a monthly lease to the real estate company. They pay for the nurses, the PPE, all the other
1: doctors who come in, all of that, and they wanna make a profit. So how do they make that profit? Those nursing homes that are mostly owned by for-profit companies? Well, most of the people who live there permanently, the government is paying for their care because they've run out of money. And the government pays about $200 a day for each resident through the Medicaid program. That's the one that covers you when you run out of funds in old age. But $200 a day, that doesn't cover all the costs. So there are a few other ways these nursing homes stay in business. One is that they take people for short-term stays. You might have had this happen. A parent has a fall or breaks something or has surgery. They go to the hospital, and pretty soon they'll be discharged— and sent to a nursing home for rehab, maybe for a few weeks or months. The idea is to get them well enough to go home and live independently. The government does pay for this rehab through Medicare. That's basically that government-funded health insurance you get when you're older. Medicare will pay that nursing home a lot more for your short-term stay.
0: So if, if you are in traditional Medicare, traditional Medicare is going to pay about $500 a day for that rehabilitation patient. Medicaid is going to pay about $200 a day for that
1: long-stay resident. So the huge difference in how much they're compensated. When COVID hit, lots of people put off the kinds of operations these nursing homes get most of their income from, like hip replacements and knee surgery, that kind of thing. People wanted to stay out of residential care facilities. And this created a huge hole in the business model of nursing homes. Now, Some big real estate firms are backing out of their nursing home investments. And the operators, the companies that provide the care, they're left trying to keep the doors open with a lot more expenses from COVID and fewer customers.
0: So you might ask, why do people want to be in this business if they're making such little profit? You can make more money doing something else. This is what you do. You operate a nursing home. You're a big chain. You operate a nursing home. You get paid by the government to run that facility. But that's not where it ends, because you also own a different company that sells laundry services to the nursing home, and another company that sells pharmacy services, and another one that sells rehabilitation services. That's where you make your money. One of the problems
1: is that as a consumer, you have no idea about this. It's weird. We almost need these nursing homes to earn a lot of money, even if it comes with these monopoly-type practices. Because these facilities won't be there for your grandma or your mom if the for-profits pull out. The non-profits can't really afford what it takes now to provide long-term care. As a country, we've created a market-based solution for elder care in nursing homes, even when the government is paying for a lot of it. And when the government isn't paying? At all those places I get ads for, the senior livings and the lifestyle residences – There's not really a limit to what those places can charge. And as Howard Gleckman found out, they may or may not provide the assistance your family needs. So I asked Howard if there's a country that does it better. Uh, Yes, almost every country, almost every developed country
0: in the world does this better than we do. All of the European countries, Singapore, Taiwan, Israel, uh, all have public long-term care insurance programs. They have social insurance for long-term care, just like we have social insurance for Medicare And just like we have Social Security, they have it for long-term care. Um, And it makes it much more affordable. In nearly every other developed country, they spend way more than we do for long-term care and for personal supports and much less than we do for health care. We flip it. We spend more than any other country by orders of magnitude, more than any other country in the world on our health care and very little on our long-term care. And... There's some research out there that suggests that if we spent more on long-term care, we would be spending less on health care. Just think of it like this. If you have somebody who's living at home and they get good supports and services, they get good long-term care, they're going to be healthier. They're going to be less likely to fall. They're going to be less likely to be malnourished. They're less likely to be confused and wander because there's going to be somebody with them to keep an eye on them. Um, and, and
1: all of those things are gonna prevent them or at least make it less likely that they're gonna to go to the hospital. Right, which just seems like that's where the bulk of spending happens the last few years of someone's life. And that's how we do it in this country. And it's stupid and it's a waste of money
0: and it's bad for, for older adults and younger people with disabilities and it's bad for their families. But that's what we do. So in my perfect world, we we have a fully coordinated system that provides both health care and supports and services when you need it. You go to one place, make one phone call and get all of this care coordinated for you. And we also have a public insurance program that pays cash and you can use that cash to design whatever model of care is most appropriate for you. So you use that money to hire an aide if that's what you need. You use it to put in a wheelchair ramp if that's what you need. You use it to arrange for food delivery or transportation to the doctor. Whatever it is that's best for you, you can use that cash benefit and pay for it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what to do. The challenge
1: is to figure out how to do it, how to make it happen. Howard had a few other insights that made me think a little differently and I think are worth noting as we wrap up this season of 24-7. They have to do with how we think about older people and how we think about women and families.
0: The joke always was that, you know, if you need long-term care insurance, you know, have daughters. Um,
1: (laughs) That's true.
0: If you are a, a daughter... Who is caring for a parent? This not only takes a a big emotional toll and physical toll financially, it has tremendous consequences. Uh, Last year, the Rosalind Carter Institute uh, uh, did a really good survey and they found that one in five full time workers cares for a family member who has an injury or a disability or an illness. And 20% of them say they had to quit their job to care for a relative. And 40% of them said they had to go to part-time work. Case in point here. I went to part-time work. Yep. There's another study that was done by AARP some years ago. And it found that a 50-something woman who quits her job to care for a parent is likely to lose $300,000 in lifetime income. And that's wages, that's social security benefits, that's 401ks. Because after their parent dies, they are unlikely to take a job that paid as much as the job they had when they went part-time or quit. Um, And uh, they never make it back. So as bad as this is for um, um, middle-income people and white-collar people, it's far worse uh, for low-wage workers. So here's the weird thing, Kitty. So when in this country, we think about families, we immediately go to families with kids and we provide all kinds of support for families with children. We have child tax credits for 80% of parents in this country. We have public schools. We have, you know, nurses in the schools. We have everything we provide, but child care. We provide transportation yes, to and from school the buses. schools. We do all this stuff for families with children. We don't have family leave. We don't, every other country has that too. But but we provide an enormous amount of support for families with kids. We somehow don't think about older adults as part of families. And we think that when you get old and frail, well, you're on your own.
1: Or you should you just know. go be put somewhere.
0: Yeah, I mean, whatever. I mean, you know, it's just not our responsibility. Society has no responsibility for old people. Well, you get old, you die. What are you going to do? And, and and that's that's kind of the same attitude that the politicians have. Well, you're 85, you know, what do you expect? We're not going to take care of you. Besides, you can't be productive. You, know, we're, you take care of a kid and you say, well, they're eventually going to become a productive member of society and pay their taxes. And then we're going to get our money back. When you think of an older adult, nobody thinks this person worked for 50 years paying taxes, providing, you know, for their families. And now we're going to throw them away because they're old. And that's the kind of mindset, that's the kind of ageism, frankly, that that this country has. Um, and until we get over that, we're probably not really going to solve the policy problems that we have to solve. This is much bigger than, you know, what's the design of a care system. This is really about a
1: cultural change in this country. Howard Gleckman, senior fellow at the Urban Institute, and author of Caring for Our Parents. Despite all the difficulty, despite the confusion and the emergencies, Howard says he was deeply grateful he could arrange care for his older relatives. And as for Howard's wife, she was so moved by the experience of helping with late-life care, she made a career change. She left her job as a lawyer to become a hospice chaplain. Being able to spend time with
0: people who are dying, with their families, hear their stories, sing to them, hold their hand, turned out to be something that was very gratifying for her. And I think a lot of people who are family caregivers uh, find the same thing. It's very hard. It's challenging in a lot of ways. But it's also something we do out of love. And it's it's something we do that can help give back to people who cared for us for all those years.
1: We're concluding this second season and taking a little break to look for more conversations and experiences. If you'd like to share yours, please write or send us a short voice memo. You can send it to 247 at tpr.org. 24-7 is produced by me, Kitty Isley, with Ben Henry. This week, we have help from Jacob Rosati. We have editing help from Cindy Carpian and Reka Murthy. As always, I hope you'll share this podcast. Send it to your friends or your family. We can all use as much knowledge as possible about care and aging. 24-7 is a production of Texas Public Radio.
0: Stories like those shared in this podcast inspire the work being done at the Biggs Institute of the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. We are searching for a cure for Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases while providing comprehensive dementia care, online educational resources, and access to clinical trials. Our work offers hope to the more than 55 million people worldwide impacted by dementia. Learn more about a healthier future for aging at uthealthdementia.org.